Did, did you see what I named the episode? Uh, no. Roger Kumar, the Laird Hamilton of the public markets. Do you know who Laird Hamilton is, Chris? Laird Hamilton. He's a skater, isn't he? No, he's a, he's a surfer. <laughs> he's not the Tony Hawk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, you know. <laughs> well, you know, no, you know, interesting. Um, having that, you know, I think of that California blonde um, uh, haircut for surfers, right? You know, mm-hmm. this very stereotypical, kind of, you know, kind of a little longer hair. Um, are you familiar with the haircut I'm? I'm assuming about. Yeah, oh, I've seen Laird Hamilton. Once you put my mind right, I have a dear. So, so Roger actually is a little like a, uh, you know, he is a surfer. Mm-hmm. He loves to surf. Mm-hmm. It's a big passion of his. Mm-hmm. Likes to even go to Costa Rica just to surf. Uh huh. Um, and Roger has this surfer haircut. And I've never met another Indian with a surfer haircut. <laughs> He's going to change you know, the style in the subcontinent, man. <laughs> I, I get, you know, and he's first generation American. So he's got to be like the oldest first generation American I've ever met. Uh-huh. Um, you know, at, at 52 or 53. Right. Um, and um, his name is Roger. So I didn't even know he was Indian until he like, cued me in 20 minutes into the first like round table meeting we're at. <laughs> Well, there are some adoptive names in different cultures which are more prominent, right? Don't do many um, Indian Americans choose Roger as a name? I, I don't know any other. No one. I don't know one. <laughs> that doesn't mean they don't exist. I just don't know them. <laughs> oh, Roger. Hello, this is Chris. Hey, Chris. How are you doing? I'm well, thanks. How about you? Uh, Good, good. Sorry for the delay. I uh, just had a little issue, but we're good now. Good. R- Roger, did you see what I named this episode? I did not. Do I want to? Could you just read it for me, just so I could be really amused? I pretty please. I'm not seeing what you've got, so you amuse me. What do we got? <laughs> <laughs> your, your voice isn't as good as it was last time. I don't know if you have headphones. I do. That'd be the only. But they're they're wireless. Hmm. Uh, okay. Um, it, it's the I, I named it Roger Kumar, the Laird Hamilton of the public markets. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! We're, that's a, we're, we're that's bringing a you to we're bringing you to Jaws. Okay. That is a high hurdle. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Good. I'm an old I'm um, an old man. I serve small ways now. But go ahead. Go ahead. That's what, what do you mean by small? Don't you? I'm betting when you go out there, you're looking for 15, 20 foot waves minimum. No way, man. I'm too old for that stuff now. I don't want to be held Seriously? under for 30 seconds. Yeah, that's scary as shit. Those days are, those days are behind me. No more washing machines. Huh? Oh, exactly. Exactly. You got it, Chris. Yeah. Wait, so, so wait, no, t- tell me what, what size waves do you ride before we talk about the public markets? Well, the public I, market waves, I should say. I mean, you know, you kind of get what you get when you surf, right? You go for different conditions, and sometimes they're big, and sometimes they're small. Sometimes yeah, they're fast like and you're... powerful. Yeah, you know, at this phase of my life, once you get over head high, it's, you know, I, I don't need to scare myself to death anymore. It's it's fine It's fine to just be anywhere in the head high to, to smaller range, fast and, and mm-hmm. fun is, is, is good enough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so do you still, are you still able to ride, I'm, I don't have any of my surfing terms correct, the, the pipe on the inside on a six foot wave? 
Uh, yeah, see, I've never surfed. I've never surfed pipe before. I mean, I'm not, you know, like a super crazy uh, barreling surfer. I've been surfing off and on for a good chunk of my life. And I just, I'm just looking now for, you know, a nice mellow wave, get in the water, have fun. Everything changes when you get older. I, I feel like you could be talking about wine. And the very funny thing is I don't, it's funny that you say you're older and I only know you're older because of gray hair, but no other part of your personality seems older, if oh, you will. That's good. That's nice. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I, I'm kind of curious, um, you, you know, about this conversation in general. Chris, I thought we should have a good debate between Roger Kumar and we'll do his intro at the end. So, okay. so Chad will be happy mm. with us, but um, you know, Roger was saying I likely had a lack of imagination in how I was thinking about how quants thought about the market. And so I was, I was, I was talking to him about our last podcast conversation hmm. where we were, where I asked you, do you think there's a lack of imagination by the people who are programming the algorithms of where things are going? And he's like, maybe they actually see over the horizon and you don't. And I was like, wow, okay. I don't actually know, but we've got to have you back on to talk about this. Cool. Um, just in general. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Roger, I guess if you if you offend me more, I'll just have you on the podcast more often. Yeah, I, that happens frequently in my life. That's fine. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I kind of curious about, you know, maybe you might build on some of that conversation we were having. Well, if I recall the way we framed that debate, you were sort of suggesting that algorithmic traders, um, traders that are basically following, um, you know, quantitative models might only see a narrow slice of the world and they're not, they're perhaps not able to input other factors into their thinking. And I think my counterpoint to that. And I said even pandemics. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think my answer was kind of twofold. On the one hand, I think I agree with you because, you know, for the most part, what a lot of algorithmic traders are, are doing is some form of either trend following, you know, convergence or divergence trading, depending on if they're doing that a risk or a riskless strategy, you know, an arbitrage or a directional strategy. So we probably would have to define what we're talking about. That universe is, is massive, hmm. but you know, I think we're starting to see stuff that is incorporating tons and tons of data now across a pretty broad spectrum of strategies. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that world's changed. Now, I don't really come from that world. You know, we're all having to trade against that world now. So I know a little bit about it. You know, my background is a little more the, um, you know, the hedge fund world that I came from is, is, is really very fundamental in its thinking. Maybe, you know, traditional technical analysis. Whoops, I'm going to have to find a way to get out of that because that's going to annoy us. Um, that's actually one of my programs running in the background, even though it was on. Let me close that out. Is there any chance you have wired headphones too while we've got you moving around, Roger? Uh, it would take me a minute to find them. Oh, we'd love to wait that extra minute. Is it pretty bad? Okay. I know Chad would. Okay. It's Let not me... as good as last time. Okay. Uh, give me just a couple minutes so I can come up. Yeah. yeah thanks, That's Roger. Fun. So, Namo, I think also, you know, what we had discussed was the 
concept of um, algorithms becoming a crowded trade or certain elements of them, whether it's a, you know, specific corner of the market like trend following or CTAs. So interesting. I don't think we actually got into that depth, but that's my, my, might have been what you talked about or what you were thinking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think the broader, I'm going to switch over to Wired uh, in a second here. I think the broader point that I was making was actually not the extent to which algorithmic traders can incorporate, you know, a wide spectrum of information. It really was, you know, I think the word that you're hung up on is imagination, right? What, what will something consider? What, you know, either a trader or a program. And, you know, there's, there's obviously been a pretty, you know, serious debate in the market right now about the extent to which the market might be ahead of the real economy, right? There's this ongoing debate. Why is the stock market back? You know, some indices are at all time highs. S&P is getting close to its old high. Why is that happening when what appears to be going on in the real economy, you know, isn't great. So if that's, if that's true, who's right and who's wrong? And I think this is really a pretty complex discussion. One, the market obviously is a discounting mechanism and is potentially looking over the horizon to better news. So we certainly have to take that into consideration. Uh, you know, but, but also uh, the market tends to react to a change in direction of trend. So the fact that things are less bad is in the short term what the market's reacting to. It doesn't matter that if it's bad in absolute terms, it's less bad relative to expectations. So that's a powerful uh, you know, motivator for market participants to start getting longer risk assets. And that's, that's what's going on. I, I think what's going on right now is a combination of a few things. Things are less bad. There's a massive amount of Fed stimulus and there are a ton of people that got caught leaning wrong on this market, meaning it seemed clear that things have to go lower because the economy is unraveling or was unraveling. And now we're seeing a few things that are inconsistent with that thesis. So that's what I think this rally is about. Do you think, think that the, the amplitude of do, do you think that the amplitude of the change? I mean, because it's more significant in terms of the volatility and the directional change and sort of the procyclical moves. You think that's amplified by the by the algorithms and the programs that we're seeing? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think you make a great point. I remember seeing a change in the tone of markets in terms of you know, you know. Convergence and divergence traders think about moves that are, you know, a certain number of standard deviations away from normal, and they start pressing their bets when things start to diverge or, you know, diverge away from their, you know, their mean performance. They start to they start pressing bets. That's a, that's a typical program for a convergence trader. I remember seeing uh, markets move way past their norms. You know, this seven, ten, twelve years ago. So the makeup of market participants is only increasingly moved towards more quantitative traders, more algorithmic traders. So that's a, a, a dynamic that we just have to, to deal with and face. So the short answer to your question or your statement this is absolutely, I totally believe that's true. It's going to get tougher. But also, I think that creates a lot of interesting opportunities when things move farther than they should, and should's a word that you know, we could probably debate when it comes to the market. 
Um, but when things move farther than you believe they should, maybe that's a better way to phrase it, that can create you know real opportunities in both directions. So this push up, which has a lot of components that I you know, mentioned before, things like stimulus, which has been a ton of fuel for the market, mm-hmm. participants leaning wrong, also is absolutely exacerbated by algorithmic traders. Yes. What, what could change the direction again? I mean, we're seeing a divergence in the credit markets. I mean, LCD, S&P's, uh, you know, credit watch division yeah. is saying that the, you know, leveraged loan market's flashing yellow. I mean, we really are seeing um, a lot of destruction and some rolling bankruptcies in that space. And uh, uh, in the corporate space, too, the highest number of bankruptcies ever in one month uh, right. for publicly traded companies. So. What do you think would change the mind of the market just in a sense that you could uh, bet directionally again? Well, you know, I, I think if you think about this kind of market dynamic in historical terms, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a market historian. I appreciate, you know, what's happened in the past and I've done some reading. I'm not one of those guys that can cite, you know, all the declines, all the circumstances <laughs> around them and things like that. But, um, but it's your baseball I, cards. I right. Yeah, yeah. But I definitely, you know, if you look at every waterfall sell-off that has occurred in history, this kind of, you know, down twenty-five, down thirty, down forty in a very, very short period of time, um, you almost always get a powerful reflex rally, and it really doesn't matter what the environmental conditions are. It doesn't matter if things are recovering. It doesn't matter if things are getting worse. That reflex rally is kind of embedded in the nature of markets. You get that. And then, you know, at some time after, you know, it could be a few months, it could be five years. If you look at the, you know, the crash of 29, there was a 50% reflex rally. And it took five years before you made new lows. Um, you, You could have that environment as well. So, I don't think you can draw conclusions about the real economy just because we've had this massive rally. So if you if you are a bear and you really believe that dislocations are, are going to continue to occur, you should not let this rally, uh, you know, stop your thinking. I mean, this is this is not unusual. Right. Irrespective of how this is going to play out, this reflex rally is not unusual. There's the technical trader in you coming back out. It's good to there hear. It is. Right, there it is. right, right. And and subsequent retracements too, should the market fall again. You know, it's not a straight line up or down. The truth is, you have to have the rally to get the decline. That's 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 something that I think a, a lot of um, you know sort of amateur traders and uh, people that are purely fundamentally oriented don't appreciate. You, you have to have the rally in order to get the decline. The rally is embedded in the decline. It, it, it brings new fuel into the market, new buyers. They have to be hurt. Once they get hurt and give up, you know, you have this sort of occurs in waves and cycles. So no decline from peak to trough is without significant rallies. We just observe every bear market and we see that. So if you have a strong fundamental view that it's lower from here, this should not dissuade you. Well, so my, my argument or question is, and this is maybe where part of our conversation started was, with the number of traders being so different um, as computer, what, 90% of the market's done by software today? Mm-hmm. 
Um, oh, we see, yeah, on any given day, anywhere from 80% to higher, yeah. Okay, so 80% to higher. Um, that wasn't true 10 years ago. So is it possible that the market continues to grow because of the lack of imagination? That it should actually be, because the market doesn't seem to match. What do you mean you the market know, should continue to grow? Explain what you're saying with grow. Uh, gain in value, have a rally, right? Or continue to, to trend up. So you're... Uh, just so I understand what you're saying, you're saying, is it possible that the nature of having more alg algorithmic traders, uh, you, know, you know, contributes to uh, like a value an expansion in valuation, you know, market going higher, just that factor alone? Is that, is that a belief in expansion of valuation? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Multiple expansion. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because in the long run, there are very uh, limited number of like long-term drivers for the market. It really comes down to earnings, earnings expectations, and interest rates. And I might be missing a couple of important things, but it really kind of revolves around that. And valuable assets are kind of driven by, for the most part, interest rates. So, you know, participants can push things around, can push them higher than they should be, lower than they should be, but you can't move price that far off of intrinsic value just because you're algorithmic instead of a human participant. I don't, I don't believe that's the case. I think things are going to settle where they're supposed well, to settle. Wasn't there, what, so you don't, so going back to the, the flash crash, was that not an issue with, um, was that not an issue with, uh, and, algorithm that couldn't actually realize what was happening? Sure. In the short term, I, t I totally agree with you. But my point is that where things settle out longer term and that recovery was very, very fast, right? Yes. The recovery, yep. Right. So the counter move probably gets you closer to equilibrium just as fast because, you know, you're going to you're going to settle out somewhere around real value. I mean, if you have any core belief that markets and aggregate will find value, you have to believe that no one can push it way, way, way above or way, way, way below for long periods of time. Well, it's been, I guess you have to define a long period of time. I mean, by, by NIPA accounts, uh, profits have been flat to declining for five years, yet the expansion in that multiple on the S&P 500, for example, has just gone up and up and up. So stock yeah, prices have risen, but certainly cash flows haven't changed much. That's a good point. And, and I've, I've had this debate before. I think there are other factors at play that are driving stocks higher. I think this enormous bull market in bonds is giving you a significant uh, expansion in the multiple. I also think there's a scarcity value in stocks that's going on. You know, that there's, there's sort of a joke. I'm not sure if I have the exact numbers right, but it's kind of a, you know, who's in Grant's tomb joke, which is how many stocks are in the Wilshire 5,000? And it's something like 3,500. <laughs> Yeah, it's less. So, yeah, right. <laughs> still shrinking. Right. Still shrinking. Right. So you're getting scarcity value for equities, and you're you, you've got this you know incredible underpinning because of you know incredible low rates. So I think you make a good point, Chris, as far as the earnings picture goes, but not as far as the interest rate picture goes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's valid. I'd agree. There are several factors, but this has been a pretty remarkable run. It has been. Yeah, it's led a lot of people to believe uh, uh, this um, sort of disconnect between the underlying fundamentals of the economy 
and the the market prices that we could continue to still see these expansions in multiples. Um, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Are there any asset classes you're afraid of today? Either one of you? Not that you're not investing in. Of course, there's lots of things you're not investing in, but afraid of. Hmm. I wouldn't, wouldn't touch that. Chris, you want to go I, for that? I, it's a... It's a uh, a tough one. We're talking Friday, June fifth. Friday, right? so. June fifth. <laughs> Friday, June fifth. Well, it's it's hard to, you know. Sometimes I I um, hate labels. Sometimes I subscribe to them. So it's you know it's the old joke is a washing machine and asset class. But I think in um, one sense the 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 private equity industry has uh, um, really <laughs> had a lot of excesses. Even a lot of abuses, and this is a I'm painting with a broad brush, but I'd be very wary there because of those marks. I don't know um, that those things can really hold. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one area that I'm very skeptical of, and keep a very uh, uh, close eye on. Others probably junk bond spreads have really <laughs> narrowed again. I think all of the uh, sort of low grade credit. Um, leveraged loans, that sort of thing, I think are um, flashing yellow, like the LCD S&P report says. I think that's very real. We're seeing a lot of distress there. And that's usually where it first surfaces. And of course, a lot of that's embedded in the private equity um, industry as well. So, Right. Yeah, I, I, I think I would generally agree with you. I think almost everywhere along the curve, it's hard to find value both in quality or, or duration. Um, I, I mean, I just think, you know, we've had a 40-year bull market in bonds. We're moving to a place in that asset class where, uh, you know, it's getting it's getting really challenging to see how you're going to get that asset class continuing to outperform. So I guess, you know, if <laughs> I were to lack imagination, I guess the counter argument there, wait till the U.S. goes to negative rates. I mean, I guess you could continue to make a case for it, but I'm struggling with that. No, I struggled in I struggled in 2015 and 2016 when we first saw the appearance really of negative rates on any scale. And, uh, you know, the rates went more negative. <laughs> so right, right, right. rally, you know, in uh, Austria, Germany, especially uh, pretty remarkable. Yeah, so I think that 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 discussion is is interesting because if we, you know, to answer your question, Neil, there's there's I don't I don't see a, a lot a lot of you know things that are super compelling right now. It's it's hard to make a case for for value almost anywhere. You know, uh, I probably could make a case for um, for some areas of natural resources, maybe some areas of EM. Um, but you know, as a as an asset manager, I think what you're constantly trying to do is find either absolute or relative value, and it's kind of hard to find anywhere right now. So I'm yeah. not really excited about much, with the exception of you know I think there's there's some opportunities in the metals market and junior miners. Um, you know, it's kind of it's kind of tied to this broader thesis that rates have been too low for too long. And if you believe that that's true, there has to be um, a consequence to that. 
-hmm. And if central banks are fighting that natural consequence, which they appear to be doing, then there's got to be consequences to that. And I think that's going to play out in... Uh, yeah, you've been thinking about this thesis for a while, actually. It's been right. I mean, honestly, I mean, I think the first time I talked to you, goal was probably at around 1,000. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, now we're, we're, you know, 1650, 1750. So it, it has been correct. And in the face of uh, almost double, it's hard to find bulls. I mean, you'll find bulls among the people that are already have a bias towards gold, of course. But I'm talking about not the man on the street. If you look at his portfolio, it doesn't exist. Yeah, it's under-owned. It's in uh, pension funds, institutional, have almost yeah. none. And certainly on the retail side. And I've been uh, in parallel with you, Roger, on this um, for even longer than when gold was at 1,000. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a pretty remarkable run. And that's one area of the market, too, Neil, where you've seen cash flows just uh, really at records. And this is last year with a much lower realized price right, right. on the metals. So. And, you know, from, a, from a, a technical perspective, one of the most bullish conditions you'll ever find is an asset class where prices are rising and, and no one really cares. <laughs> that, that, that is an environment that is you know, it's telling you there's room to run. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you're at the cocktail party and everyone's talking about it, you know, and everyone's in, then, you know, that's, that's a different set of conditions. This is, this is <laughs> no quite more different. buyers, only potential sellers. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is a very different world in that space for sure. Have you, Chris, have you been reading, uh, the you know Ray Dalio's work, and I know he's been a, a gold bull for a while. But have you gone through his whole paradigm shift, you know, discussions and, and writings? I have, yeah, and um, and that of Druckenmiller too. And you know, I mm -hmm. think um, you see a lot of the um, large investors like those guys um, who've had tremendous success um, have been on this um, theme as well for a while. Um, you know, but. What you were saying, Roger, about the turn in the the bond bull market is certainly seminal. Um, mm -hmm. and a significant uh, uh, would would represent a significant change in direction for the overall markets. But the last the last bond bull market, uh, I mean, uh, bond bull market ended in 1946, and still 12 years later, 1958, long rates were only like 25 basis points higher. <laughs> on the 30-year bond. So there was a very, very gradual increase in rates. And of course, this is different than that, right. um, especially given the, the massive amount of central bank interventions globally. Um, but I wonder if it won't matter what the absolute difference is. I mm -hmm. think it might matter just what the, um, you know, the, the incremental change is because we've got so much debt pegged to lower rates that a move from two to three could be pretty destructive, right? <laughs> it's a 50% move, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. So very, very true. So Roger, when you're not investing in the public markets as much, especially because you see yourself as an investor and you kind of can't sit still um, as a human being, <laughs> uh, what is it you're looking at? Hmm. Well, you know, I think the public space informs a lot of my thinking. That's just because it's 
you know, my background and how I learned to kind of view different asset classes and sectors of the economy. So that's always the backdrop of how I think about it. And then from there, I might, you know, sort of, you know, look at subsectors and then find interesting things to do. I mean, I think most investors are looking for, you know, great, you know, long-term organic growth stories that are occurring. And, and you, you get a good view of that through the, the public markets. So, you know, from there, I try to be opportunistic about, you know, things that are, that are occurring. And, you know, I've, built up some investments on the private side and it's a bit ad hoc it's has not been you know thematic but um you know every deal sort of stands on its own merits and you know neil you and i have participated together in some of those deals we've discussed them you know a lot of the things that i'm invested in and um you know the portfolio certainly doesn't look like anything that has a theme to it but you know the stories are are defensible it, you know, a, a while back, this is a, a long while back, you, you know, you and I were talking quite a bit about um, CBD and the the rise of uh, of the marijuana stocks, yeah. if you will. Yeah. Um, is that still a sector you're spending a lot of time looking at? Or do you think a lot of it's it played is. out? Or- it is. And I, I actually really like the fact that it's, it's very blown out and investor sentiment is horrible. I mean, we've had a little rally here in, you know, in the last few months, um, but for the most part, those stocks were very washed out. Um, and it's interesting that from a timing standpoint, you're, you've got some considerable uh, tailwinds that are starting to uh, starting to evolve. So, on the one hand, you know, valuations are reasonable. Uh, I, I, again, for a sector that has, you know. We, I guess we could argue about whether valuations are reasonable, but I think they're certainly much more reasonable, right? So as an index, you're still probably down 70% from the high. 70 you're not buying the peak, though. <laughs> you are not You are not buying the peak. That's exactly right. Right. But when you pick through the rubble, you are – It's. You're, I think you're starting to see a couple interesting companies emerge. And, you know uh, – there's some there's some really good there's some really good stuff out there that's talking about the different ways of you know investing in 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 the cannabis cycle and you know it's 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 talking about initially you know the, the dried flower was where everything everything really started but now we're moving into other form factors and 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 healthcare and medicine around cannabis biotech around cannabis software that supports cannabis um, so that industry is starting to become more mature from a business and sector standpoint but as an investment you know there's no capital there i mean i I don't know what the value of the entire index is but i suspect it's pretty tiny so that in and of itself makes it more interesting you've got you know some survivors you've got valuations that have come down you've got um you know this sort of domino effect of more states uh adopting uh you know uh state laws that are favorable for for cannabis companies I think you're getting closer to the passage of the, um, the Safe Banking Act, which allows for you know interstate commerce. You're getting a little bit of a shift from the illicit market um, to the legal market. So to me, a lot of these little things are starting to play out at a time when people hate the sector. That's always interesting as an investor. So yeah, I, I, I think in, 
you know, people that understand this sector, this is this is pretty good timing. Interesting. Are, are you know? Are you also looking at um, psilocybin or you know? As I watched billions a few weeks ago, ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah, you know. I, Wait, Chris, do you actually watch the show? You've never referenced it. Uh, uh, episodically, not uh, regularly. Yeah. Yeah. They, they started they started the beginning of season five going to an ayahuasca ceremony mm. <clears throat> yeah it's pretty yeah, interesting it does seem like, mainstream it does seem like there's kind of uh, a cultural moment that's evolving there right it's kind of being picked up in in, yeah. in uh in pop culture and you're even seeing some opportunities in the public market space that are kind of interesting i am looking at it um it 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 might be early, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm taking a look at it. I think it's interesting. Is there, is there opportunities in both? The, I don't. I don't pay any attention to what's going on with those opportunities in the public markets. Yeah, there's probably a handful of companies that um, you can invest in. I'm not sure how investable they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got some uh, people that have moved over from the cannabis space um, into that into that area that are giving it people that have had success in cannabis that are giving it a little bit of, you know, credibility and you're getting some capital coming in now, but it's, it's early. I think, I don't know, Chris, if you look at this, I think there's maybe less than a half a dozen public companies. Uh, yeah. In this space. It's uh, still a very, very small space. Um, yeah. But the, but you're right. The cultural zeitgeist is moving that direction. I mean, you have, you know, uh, many books, uh, many people advocating um, becoming psychonauts. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Pollan, the omnivore's dilemma. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm actually reading that one right now. It's interesting. It's, it's a great book. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the how to change your mind? For the how to change your mind by Michael Pollan. Yeah, but that's yeah. A, definitely a shift in trend there. Yeah, you know, I haven't done enough work or, or, or reading or research, but, you know, where I am right now and sort of digging through it, it's it's pretty fascinating stuff. I mean, I think that you're going to have, you're probably going to have a more um, receptive, uh, you know, at least in terms of, of, of treatment, I think that you're moving into a space where people are becoming more receptive to the idea of of using things like uh, psilocybin and uh, and and ketamine for for PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, I know that there are treatment centers in Canada that are being utilized. Um, uh, I'm, I'm reading about um, uh, acquisitions from these Canadian companies into California. So that seems to be kind of um, we're, we're we're we could be early, but. Um, it's, it's probably something that investors should at least, you know, read up on and take a look at. Yeah, I think it's, I, it's following, Roger, the path that the marijuana and cannabis exactly. companies did, you know, first with medical um, and then in Canada and then Canadian companies coming to <laughs> uh, branch out to especially California and the West Coast. But that, that model has uh, been proven, I guess, as a proof of concept. And so it's a... A natural fit for the these other companies that are following exactly i agree i agree interesting so when do you how 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 many you know do you think it's less than a decade in which we see a cannabis company worth as much as a a beer company 
I don't uh, know that uh, they'll be separate, Neil. Great. Uh, okay. Yeah. That that's a good answer. Yeah. I I, I don't know that they'll. You know. I, do you think Budweiser is going to start to buy some of these companies? Well, it's already happened. Mm-hmm. It's already happened. Constellation Brands is, you know, is. Uh, 55% owner of Canopy Growth. So right. they're already there. And they're there because they, they they see, you know, consumer taste and they see the the data. You know, every everywhere that every state that, you know, goes through legalization, um, you start to see, you know, you're you're losing some consumers from from alcohol to cannabis, and I think when you start to look at it generationally, it's that 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 point is even, you know, more relevant. And, you know, uh, I think your your twenty to forty year olds have a much stronger orientation toward marijuana um, uh, than at, at any point in history. So. If that's true, then these alcohol companies know that they have to be there. They have no option. Bud Light will not be the best-selling uh, recreational drug anymore, huh? <laughs> yeah, if, they, it's if, it's, if it's cannabis-infused, maybe. That's right. I saw some marketing material. Is that a thing? It is. By the way? It is a thing. Okay. And it's, it's, it's actually packaged, and, uh, and it's it's pretty attractive to the consumer you're talking about a no alcohol no carb you know uh well done craft you know cocktail infused with cannabis there's a lot of people that would prefer to do that than you know have a beer or you know a, a glass of wine so or even even the act of smoking who would rather you know ingest it that way than than use it in a different method yeah mm-hmm. absolutely yeah is it is it legal in uh, Florida, Roger? Medicinal only cannabis. Medicinal only. Medicinal only. Yeah. <clears throat> and obviously, it is in California. Yeah, yes. there's even yeah, it's legal here, and CBD infused uh, IPAs were all the rage last year. And did they help you relax anymore? I didn't really. <laughs> I didn't try them, but uh, I just saw the sales numbers, and uh, that I think was one of the impetuses, of course, for. Uh, Anheuser Busch and and then of course Constellation Brands really coming in heavily as an investor to Canopy Growth. So yeah, and, and I think the you know CBD THC you know issue is confusing a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it it still does me by the way because I haven't spent any time to really look at it. Yeah, and I, I'm certainly not an expert, but you know, just sort of superficially, it's it's two different plants. I mean, I guess they're genetic cousins in some way, but you're you're, you're extracting CBD from a hemp plant and THC from a, a marijuana plant. It's not to say that you do not get some small trace amounts of THC from hemp, but for the for the most part, you're extracting the CBD. And in terms of you know medicinal uses, CBD is generally used as some kind of you know anti-inflammatory. So it's everything from you know, a, you know, a topical cream for joint relief to, um, you know, people that have sleep issues. I've used it for sleep and it's been extremely effective. I've been, you know, pretty bad insomniac for most of my adult life. And I've tried just about everything um, to sleep and struggled, you know, with X, you know, harder drugs to sleep. I'm, I'm not into taking anything habit forming, but CBD is really the only thing that has 
really helped me sleep. So I'm, I'm a believer in, in, in its use uh, as a sleep agent. Um, you know, it's probably from a marketing standpoint, probably been a little overhyped as a, as a, as a cure all for everything, but certainly <laughs> for, for sleep, I think it's pretty effective. Yeah. Well, there are, it was the same PR f- folks who went over to uh, Moderna. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. But you know, there are about 113 different cannabinoids that have been identified and uh, THC is the psychoactive one. That's just one. Right. Um, so yeah. But CBD and others, um, isolate different cannabinoids. I, Chris, why do you have this information at your fingertips? Are you studying this market? Um, I've always been interested in it. I think it's uh, valuable. All of um, these so-called illicit drugs that have existed since mankind <laughs> first was able to even communicate about them. I mean, the Laotian word for joy is the same as the word for opium. So you look at those things and you say, well, there's something underlying this and why these uh, the use of these particular compounds has been persistent throughout human history. So I, I'm glad that there's an opening because there are many more medical studies and proven uses for these kinds of drugs. So uh, it just keeps me interested. I mean, this is a fascinating subject that I've, you know, I've, I've had some conversations with with people in the space now i'm going to go backwards to the psilocybin conversation and and you know just trying to learn you know more about what's happening um from a business standpoint and i've encountered some really interesting people and smart people whose you know perception of of psilocybin and how it can be used just it's pretty mind-blowing i mean I've, I've i've had people tell me that they believe that that um psilocybin is a sentient plant that wants to be ingested by people so that people can share so that the plant can share the human experience of the user i mean there are all kinds of people floating around this mm-hmm. this uh mm-hmm. <laughs> this space that are bright and educated but have really radical viewpoints about um, the drug, its use, what it should be used for, what it can be used for. Uh, so it is fascinating, but um, it's pretty easy to f- sort of fall down the rabbit hole here. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, moving away from um, maybe getting high, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> moving away from psychoactives to... <laughs> <laughs> to writing and, and demonstrations. Um, you know, Chris, it was interesting to me, um, and I think Roger, you, you agreed with this, that, uh, you kind of expected, uh, long before, uh, the tragedy in Minneapolis, uh, that you kind of expected writing, you kind of expected there to be some major civil unrest, um, based on where we were in, you know, just historical cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, and any thoughts about how long it lasts? Mm. I don't know if there's a way to gauge that. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the big disconnects of our time is just um, how high the uncertainty is <laughs> and how high the stock market is <laughs> in the face of that uncertainty is a little disconnect or big one. But yeah, this has swept the globe, Neil and Roger. Of course, you've seen, you know, the protests in London and um, in Australia and just, uh, it's pretty remarkable. There's a, 
bigger sense of frustration. And I think it's more than just the death of George Floyd that's fed it, of course. Um, and there were several cases, Breonna Taylor, in terms of police brutality here in the U.S. and Ahmed Aubrey, who was hunted down. So they're um, just in rapid succession um, was a tremendous frustration with that. And then, you know, I, I do think um, <laughs> the, the stay-at-home orders created a lot of short fuses. There's just uh, several contributing factors. But uh, I don't know how it'll die down. I'll tell you the answer is not uh, the confrontations we see. That uh, seems to exacerbate the situation and keeps it and prolongs it, right? It's like a good divorce lawyer who keeps you at uh, odds with <laughs> keeps you fighting and keeps you engaged in the in the fight. <laughs> can drag Keep the, yeah, yeah. 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 Didn't you say she said this? <laughs> <laughs> so, but but yeah, the uh, the answer to it certainly is not uh, violence, right? It's uh, really trying to get I, this understanding, which it seems I actually, there's a trigger. I actually wonder if uh, winter helps it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. as it turns colder, do you really want to be outside marching as often, as much? <laughs> I'm willing to bet there's historical data against protesting more in the summers in general. Well, we're still in a pandemic, in too. A, a, a yeah. second virulent wave, or even one considered to be virulent. Would probably- well, I don't know. In Florida, they just think it's pneumonia every time people die, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> They're changing the reporting numbers. Right, there. right. I mean, I don't really have much to add to what Chris said. I, 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 I agree with just about everything you know Chris said. I, I think that just the nature of of protest, um, irrespective of the issue, almost invariably, um, you know, there's an energy to that, and it and it kind of burns itself out over time. But the issue prevails, so it it's, it tends to be episodic, right? I mean, this we're going to have this is going to happen again five years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. You know, we're going to see this over and over again. Um, it, it's interesting, though, if you if you if you think about this in the context of bringing you back to our earlier conversation, the Dalio conversation, if you read some of his work, you know, he's been talking about, I guess, in some ways, a bit of a, a Marxist uprising without using that phrase, mm-hmm. um, really talking more about uh, the wealth gap and um, the extent to which that kind of, you know, civil unrest is really becoming, uh, you know, a, a larger part of, the societal problems, and it's, that's true. I think I think that's a really difficult issue to ignore. I mean, certainly, what happened in and of itself is inflammatory, but I think if you look at the broader issues, issues like you know uh, an evaporation of the middle class, now an evaporation of the lower middle class, um, skills that are increasingly becoming irrelevant. Uh, a world that's touched by software, automation, robotics, um, replacing, you know, uh, human capital with, uh, uh, with technology. Like, these are permanent issues going forward. So to me, yes, the issue in absolute terms is problematic and you're gonna, it's going to incite a lot of people. But I think the broader context is the real problem mm-hmm. interesting for sure. 
It's what's it's a strange world, world right? I would have never... It's very real, though. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably it for today. Yeah. Thank you, Roger. It's been great to have you. Roger, oh, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure. Now you can ask me about the world. <laughs> what, so what's going on um, with, with all the riots and the uh, the looting of, of poor Neiman Marcus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, those are secondary issues. You know, he had uh, just a tremendous amount of frustration. I mean, there's no more cheeks to turn. It's what the, it feels like. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, peaceful protests, you know. But Didn't you go to Argentina during, like, 2011, whenever he was uh, going crazy there? No, 2001. Oh. After the 99-2000 crisis they had, I think. And that's when you stayed at, like, the Ritz or something for yeah, 60 bucks? $65 a night, yeah, with the crisis travel. It's great good <laughs> If you're a value seeker. But it was a little bit sad, you know. I saw um, people in suits going through the hotel dumpster area looking for food and stuff for their families so you know they're probably recently <laughs> retired ceos or uh, cpas or some some white collar professionals but at least they were in the uptown area looking through the right garbage bin <laughs> yeah yeah but it's uh, sometimes hard right I've been in uh, Greece on strike. They had a garbage strike, which was and a heat wave at the same time. That one was rough, but also inexpensive. <laughs> so my wife has disabused me of crisis travel. No. Yeah, you told me because it smelled outside and the pigs weren't great. Yeah, yeah, that one was a tough one. I think that sealed the deal. But Bali after the bombing was um, was good, but it's a little sad, you know. I mean, the there was no. Um, outward problem like seeing you know recently uh, impoverished people or um, <laughs> the smell of <laughs> uncollected garbage piled up. Can you really say you're a value investor if you don't have value travel Chris? Come on. I guess you could. <laughs> <laughs> you could. Uh, you Warren, gotta tell your wife this is part of my brand of who I am. Right. Well, Warren Buffett, don't, don't ruin it Pilar. Yeah, Buffett famously of course bought the jet and said that it was it named it the indefensible because he knew <laughs> that being a value investor and buying a jet for your own personal travel is indefensible. All opinions expressed by Neil Modi, Chris Idell, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Zoe Capital or Heidel Beal and Associates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. 